The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. The American Bar Association provides access to career-changing and life-changing opportunities. Invest in your growth, Deepen your knowledge and join us in our pursuit of making a positive impact for all. The American Bar Association. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hello, and welcome to History Extra's monthly series, History Behind the Headlines. I'm Matt Alton. In each episode, our expert panel explores the historical news stories that have caught their eye and the history that will help you make sense of what's going on in the world in 2024. Each month, I'm joined by our two regular panellists. I'm Hannah Skoda, and I'm a fellow and tutor at St John's College in Oxford, and I work on the cultural and social history of later medieval Europe. And I'm Rana Mitter. I'm ST Lee Chair in US-Asia Relations at the Harvard Kennedy School. Thank you both so much for being here. Coming up, we're going to be talking about some of the history ahead of the US election year this year and a look at some of the recent developments in digitisation of records. But first, we're going to talk about a story that's been in the headlines here in the UK in the opening weeks of 2024, and that's the post office scandal. We're going to explore some of the longer history behind the story rather than getting too involved in the details of recent developments, but it's probably worth briefly setting up some of the context. Hundreds of sub-postmasters and postmistresses employed by the post office were wrongly prosecuted after 40 computer software calculated that money went missing from their post office branches. The post office itself has brought many of these cases to court in the year since 1999, and many of those convicted were sent to prison or were financially ruined. This is a long-running story. Back in 2017, a group of postmasters took legal action against the post office and a public inquiry was established in 2020, but it's been back in the headlines as a result of a recent ITV drama. I think that's some of the main elements of the story to kick us off. But Hannah, what's the longer history we need to make sense of to understand some of that story? Yes, so I've been really interested to think about the longer history of the post office at the moment and to reflect really on just how crucial the post office and postal systems have been and are to the smooth running of states. They're essential to political community, they're essential to commerce, they're essential to foreign relations. 
So the history of our post office really begins in 1660. It was established by Charles I as the general post office. And there's a wonderful quotation from the Post Office Act in 1660. It says that the well-ordering thereof is a matter of general concernment and of great advantage as well for the preservation of trade and commerce as otherwise. So you get a sense right at the start of just how much this matters for wider well-being. This is the date of the introduction of postage date stamps and postmarks. 1793, we find the first uniformed postman. In 1829, the first purpose-built mail facility. And in 1837, of course, the first adhesive postage stamp. And in 1840, the penny black which is beloved to stamp collectors, and a really crucial moment actually in introducing the idea of prepaid postage and the idea one should have a uniform rate rather than adapting the cost to every single different thing which was sent, which was not particularly efficient. The General Post Office was abolished in 1969 and the post office that we know was formed. But there's a much, much longer prehistory to this story as well. So I'm a historian of medieval Europe and of medieval England, In the 12th century, we find a permanent body of messengers being established in the royal household for Henry I. And again, this is really part of the story of the centralisation of the English state. Edward IV in the 15th century is responsible, or at least his advisors are responsible for the idea of post houses where messengers could take on fresh horses so that longer, more rapid journeys were possible. And one can trace the story right the way through with these kind of innovations which make more rapid deliveries possible. So once I traced the story back to kind of 12th century medieval England, then I thought about it in a European and a global context and realised that the Mongol Empire were responsible for a massively sophisticated postal system stretching across Asia. And of course, there, there was a far longer history stretching back into the first millennium BC as the Chinese developed incredible methods of postal communications. And then I realised one can take the story even further back in ancient Egypt with a postal system in around 2000 BC. It's amazing to think quite how long-standing that idea is. And I suppose one of the things it says to me is, how important it is for us as human beings to communicate. There's clearly been this huge urge, this huge desire to make sure there are means of talking to to each other. I mean, you mentioned that at the end of, of China, which is my research area, reminds me that actually, in some ways, there is a connection even in China with the institution you mentioned, the British Post Office. The reason being that the modern Chinese postal service, and a little plug here, actually, because there's a fantastic new book that just come out from the scholar uh, Wei Pin Tsai, who's at Royal Holloway uh, in London, called The Making of China's Post Office. And reading through this, I hadn't realised that actually one of the key figures was an Ulsterman, a man called Sir Robert Hart, who was actually a senior figure in an institution called the Chinese Maritime Customs Service. Despite the name, it was run for the benefit of the Chinese government. It picked up tariffs and taxes and so forth, but it also was run very largely by Brits. And he was born in Portadown in Northern Ireland, but shipped out in the late 19th century to China. And amongst the many things that he really was influential in was bringing a sort of globalised version of the post office, drawing, of course, on British precedents, to China. Now, as you rightly said, China had its own long history of postal services that stretched back over you know, centuries, really. But what the arrival of the Maritime Customer Service, people like Robert Hart did, was to 
reconvert China's system into something that essentially was plugged into the global network. In other words, being able to send a letter from Shanghai to London or from Beijing to Calcutta became possible in that context. Obviously, very much under the framework of imperial power on the British part. This was not an equal partnership, but there's no doubt that it brought a great deal of China's trade and international relations into a new globalized framework. And the GPO, the General Post Office, the British Post Office, certainly had quite a wide reach in historical times, particularly at the height of empire. I think it's a really interesting tension, isn't it, between, on the one hand, postal systems representing actually a very kind of top-down form of hegemonic control, and certainly in the English case, the history of the post office, and then if one takes it back to the 12th century and the history of messengers and so on, these are very much about messages going out from the centre and control over provinces and so on. And yet at the same time, there's a tension because this is also a story about communication between communities. I've been quite struck by how risky and, and actually dangerous the business of being a messenger or a postmaster has been in many different contexts over the centuries. So if one thinks about 17th, 18th century postal officials carrying bags of letters on horseback, galloping across the countryside, risking life and limb. So if we take the story back to the 12th century, we find examples of messengers carrying unpopular messages from the king to recalcitrant nobles being made by those same nobles to chew and swallow the messages which they didn't wish to receive. So I think it was a very nerve-wracking business being a messenger, delivering something that somebody didn't want to hear, a kind of precursor of the don't shoot the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger, just eat the message. Fantastic. The medieval era reminded me of something I found out just a little while ago, Hannah, which was that way back in 1490 under the Holy Roman Empire, right in the heart of Europe, the Emperor Maximilian I had arranged for him, uh, I guess, a precursor of a government postal service by the uh, the Tasso family, I think it was, and that, I think, developed over the years in the direction of Germany and other parts of that territory. You mentioned also the 18th century, and actually, I'm sitting here at the moment, actually, in the United States, and actually in a city very much linked to revolution, that's Boston. Again, well-known being one of the cities along with Philadelphia and, and others that were cradles of the American Revolution. And the Postal Service became quite a central part of the way in which that new rebel republic thought of itself. There's actually very few mentions in the early documentation of the American Republic, the Declaration of Independence and so forth, and the Constitution of any governmental institutions. But one of them they do mention is the Postal Service. And if you go to the big post office in New York, uh, I think also actually in other cities, you'll see a a slogan, which I think comes from a little later, but uh, it says that snow nor hail nor rain will prevent the messengers of the post from making their way. And I have to say, since uh, we're recording this uh, in late January, I'm just looking out my window, snow and rain here in Boston are definitely a factor at the moment. So uh, I could feel very sympathetic to, to what they were getting at with that idea. But then I found myself sort of flash-forwarding to the late Victorian era, when perhaps the most famous senior postal official in Britain would have been someone like Anthony Trollope, the great novelist, who of course made his daily bread essentially by running the post office or running the mail, but of course was able to use his position somehow or other to find time to write these astonishing chronicles, you know, Barsetshire and Can You Forgive Her and The Way We Live Now, of life in late Victorian England. And although the post office as such may not be, you know, a a constant presence in, in those novels, the sense of a kind of ordered Victorian 
infrastructure. And instead, of course, the, the terrain on which he writes is one that's, in some ways, it's about emotion, it's about class, it's uh, uh, about changing power structures. But one thinks of sort of was the post office, and of course he knew it pretty well from the inside, as part of that building up of a skeleton inside the system of, of governance that in some ways would remain very constant all the way into the 20th and even early 21st centuries until, of course, the electronic era today when numbers of letters sent are being heavily reduced. I think that may be one of the reasons why this particular post office scandal of the last few weeks and years here in, in Britain, it may be one of the reasons even now why it shocked people so much because, you know, ever since the time of Trollope, I suppose, the idea of the post office as this highly reliable local institution, you know, part of the infrastructure had really embedded itself in Western minds. I think there's also a very lovely sort of tension or maybe balance there as well between the sense of the postal service embodying what seems to be regular and reliable and trustworthy with a real sense of the heroism as well of those who go out and deliver the letters through the hail and through the snow and so on. And, and I think in a way that was something which shone through during the pandemic as well, actually, that postal officers were out there delivering letters all the time. I think another aspect of the story that has really interested me recently is this sense that it has taken a TV show to really alert people more widely to these terrible injustices. And I think that's a very interesting reflection on what the media can do. And in this sense, in a positive way, what the media can achieve. And it strikes me thinking historically, there's nothing particularly new there. Actually, things which we might describe as entertainment have always been extremely politically powerful in bringing about changes in public opinion. I was thinking about a wonderful series of plays from the 1360s in Paris, some of the earliest bits of vernacular theatre that survive. And they're massively politically pointed and they were produced every year and they amount to really pretty striking critiques of the legal system, but all produced as entertainment accompanied by a large banquet and so on. So actually, you know, these, these kind of hugely entertaining fictional shows can be really politically important, I think. And it goes back so far. I mean, I'm trying to think if there's any precedent before that, but certainly thinking of the use of satire and comedy by Aristophanes, uh, you know, in the uh, world of classical Athens uh, two and a half thousand years ago. I mean, although these days you have to do an awful lot of reading up to find out what the jokes are, it's clear that the digs at politicians, the digs at social customs and mores, you know, the, the kind of mockery of figures like Socrates, all of these sorts of ideas, along with, of course, some very, very earthy language. You know, Aristophanes was as rude as any of the kind of comedians who get themselves put late night on Channel 4 these days, were a sign that actually this was a living environment in which the stage, in which a performance could get people to act in different ways politically. Uh, I think famously in the case of Aristophanes, there was politician Cleon, who uh, I think was not delighted about the fact that he was pretty much a constant um, figure of fun. And the way in which I think that taking on in the public sphere of politicians uh, emerged in that space is something that in some ways we still live with very much today in tradition of satire. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So we're talking at the start of 2024, obviously, which is uh, election year in the US, which, as you mentioned just then, Rana, is where you are currently based. What is the history that we perhaps need to make sense of some of the aspects of what's going to happen in the coming months? Well, Matt, there's so much, obviously, we can talk about. And I have to say that if you feel that you're getting newsed out with the US election right now in uh, the early months of 2024, you wait till we get to the summer and the, the autumn, you will not be able to to get rid of it. It will dominate global news, let alone US news. I wanted, though, just to find a historical connection today between something quite specific, because it's a policy that's been put forward by the campaign of Donald Trump, a former president who's obviously looking to come back and serve a second term. That by by the way, is itself quite historically rare in U.S. experience. There's only one president, Grover Cleveland, in the late 19th century, who was elected and then was not elected for a second term, but then came back for another go and actually did manage to defeat the man who had defeated him and come back for a, a second non-consecutive uh, term. So if Donald Trump does that, he'll only be the second person to have managed to, to do it. But it's one of the less perhaps flamboyant policies, if I put it that way, that the Trump campaign is putting forward that I think has some interesting historical precedents. And that's the idea that they're going to change something called Schedule F. Now, being in America, perhaps I should say Schedule F in uh, this case, but it still sounds like a rather boring kind of bureaucratic measure. But not at all, because what it means if it's implemented is that it would change the nature of the, the employment, the contracts, so to speak, of vast numbers, I mean, tens of thousands of members of the federal bureaucracy. Now, the significance of this is that if it went, went ahead and was, was passed, the president would essentially be able to get rid of very large numbers. I mean, people are saying more than 50,000 members of the bureaucracy across the federal level, across the United States, and put in instead people who you know, presumably would be more loyal to, uh, to him. Now, this isn't new. And in fact, one of the reasons that the system doesn't operate that way today in the US is that previous experience has been rather unfortunate. And it surrounds one of the politicians of the 19th century, who perhaps isn't one of the most famous presidents of the United States, but he is um, one of the more unfortunate ones, a man called James Abram Garfield. And he was the second president to be assassinated, the first being Abraham Lincoln, rather more famously. And poor old Garfield was shot in 1881 by a man called Charles J. Guiteau, who was a disappointed office seeker. In other words, he'd been stumping and shilling and getting out on the campaign trail to get Garfield elected and then joined the queue of people who expected to get a job in the federal government as a result. And when he didn't get one, he was so angry that he went off, uh, got a gun and shot poor old Garfield and was himself then executed shortly 
afterwards. Those, by the way, who are interested in such um, matters, I highly recommend one of the great, if most macabre, musicals of Stephen Sondheim, which is called Assassins, which contains 11 or 12 originally composed songs by Sondheim. They're all brilliant, all of which are in the voices of people who have either assassinated or tried to assassinate presidents of the United States. Uh, And there's a very fine uh, upbeat number in the voice of Charles J. Guiteau. This wasn't the single occasion on which the system changed, but clearly the assassination of a president was a pretty big wake-up call in terms of why this system had a lot of flaws to it. And the successor to Garfield, again, a man who's not that well-remembered other than for having rather luxurious, bushy moustaches, President Chester Arthur, did pass one important piece of legislation, the Pendleton Civil Service Act, which is the basis, essentially, of not instant but gradual change in the US system over the 19th century and into the 20th, which got rid of what was called the spoils system. In other words, the idea that if you and your party won the US presidential election, then the federal government was yours to hand out as you wanted. And there are many reasons for this, I mean, not just the, the fear of presidents getting shot, which obviously was uh, you know, not to be desired in, under any circumstances then or now, and uh, very rare, obviously, but more the feeling that this was a field of massive corruption. Basically, people would buy positions or they'd be bribed with them. And of course, inefficiency too. If you're basically changing the entirety of the federal government every four years or eight eight years, then it becomes very difficult to keep up continuity. And by the time you get to the era actually of, say, half a century ago, Jimmy Carter, Gerald Ford, these figures of the the mid to late 20th century, the spoil system had really disappeared in any meaningful sense. The exception, and and outsiders do tend to comment on this, is that very high-level positions in the federal government do often still tend to get given to people with connections to the ruling party. The famous example is ambassadorships to nice places. So quite often US ambassadors to the UK, France, Japan, will be donors to a political campaign rather than career diplomats. That doesn't happen with the UK diplomatic service other than in very, very rare circumstances. Well, uh, Jim Callaghan, the 1970s prime minister, sent his son-in-law as ambassador to the US, but that was quite a rare uh, thing in in the British system. And so if the Schedule F changes are passed if Donald Trump gets a second term as president, it will no doubt cause huge amounts of political ruction here in the United States where tens of thousands of federal employees could find that their jobs are vulnerable. But actually, it will not be historically unprecedented. We may may yet be hearing more about that 19th century history in just a few months' time. That's fascinating. Thank you so much, Rana. And there's a really interesting kind of prehistory here too as well, isn't there? Not just in the sense of spoils systems that we can identify in regimes in previous societies, and I'm sure that medieval societies will pop into most people's heads at this time, but a sense of that kind of tension between a spoils system and a more overtly meritocratic, let's train everybody sort of system, that actually that debate, I think, is a very, very long-standing one. One monarch who pops into my head straight away is Louis IX of France in the 13th century, who becomes Saint Louis. One of the reasons that he was sainted is because he was so concerned about corruption in France in this period. And he took really concrete measures to try to deal with it and to ensure that officials occupying particular positions were doing so on the basis of their aptitude and their training to do it. So one thing he said was that local officials needed to move around every certain number of years so they wouldn't develop too many local ties in that area which might corrupt them. And equally, that these officials were never to come from the area in which they were going to serve so that personal interests and networks could be disassociated from the roles they were going to play. 
But I was also thinking about Byzantium when you were talking. As soon as you said bureaucracy, one thinks of, you know, the, the way the word Byzantine is quite often used in association with um, extreme bureaucratic systems. And in the high Middle Ages in Byzantium, there's also a really interesting sort of tension between appointing courtiers and people to run Byzantium who are very, very closely connected to or part of the ruling dynasty and those who are being appointed on the basis of their aptitude to take on these roles. Perhaps the most interesting example is um, the Emperor Andronicus in 1183, who was absolutely appalling and terrifying and eliminated all his rivals in just the most bloody, brutal ways you can imagine. He's a really terrifying figure. And yet he was committed to a kind of meritocratic system. So one of the things he does is eliminate that sort of spoils system of appointing aristocrats with close connections and instead appointing those who we think will do the job properly. This goes alongside a, a kind of ruthless erasure of many of these aristocratic families. Hannah, fascinating to hear about the way in which those medieval monarchs in Europe would find ways to try and avoid essentially the co corrupt embedding of bureaucracy by moving people around. The imperial Chinese had very much the same structure in their empires in that when you made your way up to bureaucracy, there was a, what was called a law of avoidance. In other words, that you were not supposed to essentially take a senior role in a province where you had your own home background and certainly not immediately after graduating in the civil service exams. That, of course, was also a product of something that China had much earlier than uh, any European society, which was the use of a rational bureaucratic system of public exams to actually enter the civil service in the first place. Highly competitive, very, very few people actually managed to get through and many young men, it was always men, many young men spent you know, many years of their lives trying and failing to get into the system. But because there was some system of anonymized bureaucratic examination to get yourself into the system, it provided the means to actually also create structures such as the law of avoidance that would stop people essentially accumulating too much to themselves. I have to say that like many such systems, it was honoured more often in breach than observance because it was still very possible when you're getting to this immensely powerful bureaucracy to find ways to benefit families, friends. And there were always rumours about, you know, the massive amounts of corruption at court at this period of the Ming dynasty or that period of the Qing dynasty. But it's worth noting that early on, there were many, many efforts made to try and avoid that situation emerging. It certainly wasn't seen as a free for all in that sense at all. The next story we're talking about in this episode is a consultation that's currently being done by the Ministry of Justice here in the UK about digitising and then discarding about 100 million original paper documents of wills and testaments of British people that date back more than about 150 years. The idea behind this is said to be to save money and to make it easier to access these kind of records. But it sparked something of a, I think it's fair to say, a mixed reaction among experts and other people. I wondered what you both thought about this kind of thing. Thing and also the wider issues I suppose it raises about access to archives. I would say, Matt, I don't think there has been a mixed reaction, at least from historical experts. It's been pretty much unanimous, I think, which is that this is a terrible, terrible idea. I don't know if one historian, maybe you can find one, um, who thinks that actually destroying hundreds of millions of original historical documents and hoping that a digitised version will remain robust for years and centuries to come is a good idea. Also, I should just add that the information I've seen suggests that the saving is in overall government terms a very small number of millions of pounds. Uh, in other words, it's in 
absolute terms, really a very small saving for a major destruction of a huge historical record. The major issue is the way in which the digital is being used as a substitute for the original. And what I think the government, or at least the ministry that's proposed this, has failed to understand is that actually one of the things that has most driven historians in recent years is a turn towards material culture. In other words, the idea that actually the physicality of objects has its own history. I think there are two aspects of the proposal that have been put forward that a lot of historians would find very disturbing. The first one is the idea that digital is as robust a means of preserving key and priceless historical information as the original paper version. We all know that in societies, not our own we hope, but there are plenty of them around the world, digital not only has the capacity to actually you know, go online and be made freely available, which is great, but can also be shut down at a moment's notice if the government, if an institution decides it doesn't want you to have access. It happens in China all the time. Large numbers of historical and contemporary documents that had been available freely online could be turned off at a flick of a switch. And beyond that, you also have a problem in that who chooses what gets kept? The, the government, or at least the ministry, seemed to put forward a statement that they'd make sure they preserve the original wills of famous people. Now, first of all, I think that understand, misunderstands what historians do in many cases, the idea that only famous people are worthy of having their wills preserved. But it also fails to understand that the social history of a society, the ordinary people who are not famous, often are very, very hard to reconstruct. And it's often only in a document like a will, because many people didn't have that many written pieces of work around their, their lives, something like a will that can tell you how it was that ordinary people lived and died. And the idea that these um, pieces of paper to adapt the words of the famous historian E.P. Thompson might be subject to the infinite condescension of a bunch of digitizers is something that I don't think that most people who are interested either in writing history or reading history would really thank them for, certainly for an absolutely trivial financial saving in this case. Yes, I completely agree. I mean, I suppose that the sort of positive is that the digitization itself is emphatically a good thing. It's the idea that it should be a substitution for retaining the material documents too. But the digitization is wonderful and that will open up opportunities for all kinds of people wanting to do research about the people of the past, not least for those interested in researching histories of their families, but also for social and cultural and political historians. That's a wonderful thing. But destroying documents is just hair-raisingly awful, I think. And Rana is absolutely right that making effectively arbitrary decisions about who matters more in the past and whose record matters more than others is deeply problematic. And the materiality of these documents matters so much. So I don't know, when I pick up medieval documents and look at them, one gets a sense of the quality of the parchment or the paper on, what's, on, on which it's written, whether it's scuffed, whether it's been handled a great deal, whether it's got stains of something or other on it, all kinds of details that you simply cannot get from looking at a digitised version. My favourite example is a wonderful merchant's book from, I think it's from the Netherlands in the 15th century, and it's a series of extremely dull contracts, which one would think be perfect material for digitising because it's really not massively exciting. And then you turn to a folio sort of halfway through and the writing runs out and there's a big yellow stain on the page. And then the writing resumes on the following page and it says, my cat peed on my book. And, and again, there's a wonderful sense of how the materiality of this matters so much. 
And then a very different example, incredibly moving. One of my wonderful DPhil students recently was working in the archives in Florence and came across a tiny slip of parchment, which would have been tied around the neck of a baby left outside the Hospital of the Innocents in Florence as an orphan. And the tag just states who the baby is and that the baby needs care. And seeing that in its material form and feeling it and seeing the size of it and knowing that it touched the baby's skin and getting a sense of the materiality of it is just wonderful and enriching in ways that digitised versions never can be. And we've just got time, I think, to talk about one final story, which I believe is about Alexander the Great. Is that right? Yes. In the last couple of weeks in northern Greece, we've seen the reopening of what is the site of the crowning of Alexander the Great. Uh, so this is in what would have been Macedonia, or is Macedonia, but uh, would have been the kingdom of, of Macedonia back in the days of classical Greece. And it is actually astonishing to think that this character, Alexander the Great, who only lived to the age of 27, one of the most extraordinary conquerors uh, of the ancient world, still has tremendous cultural resonance. There are all sorts of distinguished monarchs of the classical era, but if we found out they had been in somewhere that had been where, they, where, where they'd been crowned, there probably wouldn't have been a huge amount of publicity around it. Whereas for Alexander the Great, it's a real news story. And there's something about Alexander that really caught public, has caught public attention over more than 2,000 years. Just a couple of years ago, actually, at the British Library, there was an exhibition on the changing meaning of Alexander the Great over the, the centuries. And it was fascinating to see how many people, how many societies have actually taken the Alexander the Great idea and run with it in all sorts of extraordinary directions. So one of the ones that I found most fascinating was um, medieval Islamic sort of miniatures, which showed sort of Alexander as a, as a kind of cultural hero of history. Things like um, entering a submarine with a cat, if I remember correctly, I think. He took a sort of cat with him and explored, you know, the, the life uh, like Jacques Cousteau for, of the ancient era um, under the waters. Now, I think there is no historical record whatsoever of Alexander the Great riding in a submarine. It would have been uh, an extraordinary thing to uh, imagine that era. But he was clearly a sort of figure who inspired people in that sense. Or Louis XIV, you know, much, much later on, drew on the Alexander myth as a way of defining himself as king, uh, as a monarch. And even beyond that, you find, I mean, much I think of, um, I mean, I'm a writer, Hannah, there's sort of the medieval romance of Alexander, which is a really influential literary text across not just European, but I think also Islamic culture during that time as well. Yes, there is. So it's mainly a 12th century text, but with a series of later manuscripts, one of which is in Oxford, in fact, and is about the most lavishly, beautifully illuminated manuscript I think I've ever seen. And the Romance of Alexander details his unbelievable conquests of territory, and then sort of reaches a bit of an impasse when Alexander has basically conquered like the entire known world and can't really think what to do next. And then in the story, in this romance in the 12th century, he decides he's done everything sort of horizontally, so he's going to do it vertically too. So that's when he decides he needs to go up into the air and down into the sea. And in this Bodleian manuscript, there's a magnificent image of the submarine that you were describing, Rana. And so he goes down into the sea and, and then he pops up again and makes the profound observation that life underwater is exactly like life on Earth because the big fish eat the smaller fish. And then he goes up into the air. And in order to do that, because obviously he doesn't have a plane, he, const he has constructed a massive sort of basket thing. And then he has 
huge long prongs on which he holds large chunks of meat. And then he gets some very, very large birds of prey, ties them to this basket and holds the meat just out of reach of the birds of prey while he stands in the basket. So the birds of prey take off and lift him up into the air from whence he can kind of observe the world that he has conquered. Anyway, they're wonderful texts and they're immensely influential and and copied and copied and copied and kind of reiterated and adapted in various forms over the centuries. Clearly, you know, a thousand years ago, Alexander was still an inspiring, fascinating figure. Clearly the case today as well. Uh, You know, these days, for instance, amongst other things, in some cultural quarters, he's become a real queer icon. And that's something that wouldn't have been so obvious even, you know, 100, 200 years ago in popular culture, but now is a really important way in which people are thinking with Alexander, you might say. There are precedents, actually. I mean, back in the 19th century, the uh, the novelist uh, Judith Gautier uh, wrote a French novel called uh, Iskander, which is Alexander, in which his relationship relationship with uh, another heroic figure of the time, Rostam, becomes uh, an important part of um, the narrative there. So maybe it's the case that every single age finds its own Alexander, but the opening of this palace is clearly a sign that the luster has not dimmed. It's changed, but it hasn't uh, dimmed. I have to say, uh, if I could manage to blag away to get over to Greece, uh, it looks fantastic from the pictures and I would really love to see it. That is an inspiring place for us to end on, I think. Hannah and Rana, thank you both so much, as always, for your time. And we'll be back early on in March. 